They were still tying my hands when I came to. I go, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, then you realize you're in trouble. After I caught my breath, I just said, <sighs> and I'll just play dead. The firefight was over. Most of his fellow Marines were dead. Don Talbot, not yet 20, was still alive, wounded far more severely than he could have imagined at that moment. He knew that he was surrounded by enemy voices and that his only way to live was by pretending to be dead. Suppress the shock, ignore the pain, take shallow breaths, stay limp, even when your head is jerked forward and an enemy soldier is staring directly at your face. This was no child's game of playing possum. The consequence of failure to fool was death. Against the odds, Don succeeded. But surviving still meant that he had to crawl through the night for help. Here is his story. So you and Kenny Graber yes. go to the recruiting office. Why did you enlist? I enlisted so I wouldn't get drafted was a lot to do with it because I would have been going anyway, I figure. And I went, and when me and Kenny Graber went to enlist, he went in the Navy, and we were going to go in on the buddy plan, but he was still 17, and I had turned 18 in June, and I couldn't go in on the youth plan, so I would have had to spend four years in the Navy. And this smart old Marine recruiter sitting over there said, hey, you can go in the Marine Corps for two. And I said, if I like it, can I stay? And he said, yeah, yeah. Sure, but you, you can, can stay in. as long as you want. Hey, but you can go in for two. And I said, I'll take two. But you enlisted at a time when Vietnam was really heating up, and did you want to go there? Yes. So that yes. was the intention. You wanted yes. to serve there. I, you know, had nothing against going to Vietnam. In fact, I basically, I'd say I wanted to go to see what it was all about. You know, my dad was a medic in World War II and seen very little action in things, but... You know, he always talked good about the service, and he wouldn't discourage me. When the time came and the guy said I could go for two, you know, I was out at, out of high school, not planning on going to college at the time, and working, I think, at the time at Willie's Weenie Wagon, which was a <laughs> hot dog stand in, in the neighborhood, basically. In Harvey, right? <laughs> well, the, the one I worked at was in Markham, 159th and Crawford is where he started as Willie Weenie Wagon. Okay. And then he did expand in the Harvey. <laughs> so you're, you get to Vietnam in 67, in February of 67? Yes. And you're... You're told that you're going to be stationed at the Da Nang Air Base, which is a huge base. Yes. And yeah. you're going to be running security there. Yes. Um, which doesn't seem to be all that thrilling, but it's a job. Yeah. And what did you think about that when you got there? Well, that's the whole thing. When you go to a place like that and go into the Da Nang Air Base, you think, you know, you heard a lot about it. You know, it's a, in fact, at the time, it was, the, I think, the busiest airport in the world. But 
it wasn't a bad idea to to do and the thing I found out and was kind of happy with was we had Quonset huts with racks you know and we were basically going nowhere overnight we we spent t- uh, time on the lines you know the perimeter of the airbase defending the airbase overnight but they were in regular concrete bunkers and they had beds and everything else in it so it was a pretty good place to be stationed yeah so there's a place you could really warm up to yeah. and and be comfortable but still serve yes uh, but that relatively comfortable existence changed in July of 67 when the base came under a ferocious attack. Yeah, that was, and I think it was the most costliest or something attack of the war as far as the damage they did. There were rockets coming on the airbase all night, and it did a lot of damage to the airbase, but very little injuries because they weren't trying to overrun it they were just trying to blow the heck out of it and they did so with yes. a lot of aircraft damage a lot of yes. the, the runways were damaged yeah. Yeah, so they, that was a mess that was a pretty big mess but in fact i was on the perimeter that night to me it was a big show in the background and the perimeter of the airbase was probably the best place to be because they didn't care about us you know they why would they want to blow up a bunker with two guys on it when they could get rid of an f4 right right so it was a good place to be was that when you had to to uh seek safety in another bunker yes okay so had to get on in the bottom of a bunker so so what happened the rockets came and we were watching them and the one thing that I saw there was there was Air Force dog handlers and the Air Force dog handler was walking the perimeter when it started and this guy dove on top of his dog when the rockets came in and that's the one thing I said to him was no you don't dive on top of him you pull him on top of you (laughs) but he cared more about his dog I think but we then went down in the bottom of the bunkers where we could still see the perimeter but it was safer from the rockets but that dog did not take kindly to you oh no no later in the night i think it was the same guy when the rockets came in the second time during the night he dove in my bunker and the dog dove at me and bit my leg and I wound up with a couple of stitches from a dog bite. So it was a fairly, fairly serious bite. He oh, drew he drew blood. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He drew blood, and they talked about rabies shots. Right. And I told the doc, I said, no, it's an Air Force dog. You know, I don't think we're going to get rabies shots. And he said, well, we got to check out the dog then. And I said, well, I'll, I'll find the dog and keep an eye on him and see if anything happens. And he said okay <laughs> now, the doctor also had some other words for you in terms of something that you might benefit from this bite what happened there well uh, he was talking about the rabies shots and that oh that i could get off work and things and 
But did he also say you could get a Purple Heart for this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he offered me a Purple. He said, yeah, I can put you in for a Purple Heart. From a dog bite. From a dog bite. And from from I, an American dog. From an American dog on top of it. But I said, no, don't do that. You know, and to this day, now I regret it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, that, you earned it later on, right, which we'll get into. Right, but I thought at the time I did not want a Purple Heart for a dog bite, an American dog on top of it. volunteered for a program called CAP, which was Combined Action Program. Yes. Would you tell us, what, what is that all about? Well, it was like a combined action where there would be 12 Marines and a, a platoon of PFs, which are popular forces, which are... South Vietnamese. South Vietnamese, and they're basically rejects from the Arvins and things. They're the villagers that aren't in good enough shape or too young or too old to be part of their army. So they were going to be with us. I would think you might be reluctant to entrust your safety and your operation to people who are not qualified to serve. Well, you know, the idea of that was kind of something we thought of but it was a more secure area was the outskirts of the air base and it was in a village where it was basically south vietnamese and it wasn't the best choice of places to be probably but it sounded pretty good and it was what what was the mission of cap it was, we were to work with the villagers and help them out and do things to help the village and make friends and have them, you know, fall in line and be more supportive of the United States. Like Vietnamization. Yeah. We got along good with the people in the village, but it was mostly women and things that we got along with. Well, that kept you then close to the base. You were not far off of Yeah. We were probably less than a mile off the airbase on a river, and it was a really a pretty place to be, you know, and it was pretty secure because the village was a friendly village, and, you know, we were set out there to be more of an early warning device for the airbase. So if the airbase was going to get hit, we they had to go through us to get to it. Well... Then there came a time for that. Yeah. When Tet began. Yes. January 30th, 1968. Right. All hell breaks loose. Yes. And you have another team of CAP. Folks, yes. that it's an echo. You were you were Echo Two. Was echo your, Two, yes. Okay, and then the other group was, was Echo Four, and they were what was happening? They were caught, or you were supposed to rescue them? Yeah, they were. Like I said, we were close to the airbase by the river, and they were across the river. That's one of the things that made our place so secure was there were no VC or maybe a few, but not much on our side of the river. During Tet, the NVA got carried away, and 
that's when Echo Four got hit, and so they, your your job is to go get them to help yeah. them. And what happened? How many of of the Marines are together to in Echo Two to go get them? Well, we send. All our Marines, I think we left two behind or something. We were combined, about 25 of us were going to go help Echo 4 out across the river. And we got on the six buys, you know, the trucks to haul, carry us over there. And, you know, we weren't too worried about it. So did you have any expectation that you were going to face fierce resistance? No, no, we didn't think much of it. In fact, going to Echo 4, we were walking down the road when we got hit. What happened? We start receiving fire, and it was ridiculous, you know, for guys that weren't used to fighting a war. But it kind of, you know, your training just kicks in, and we start shooting people, and they start shooting us. And I got shot in the right shoulder out the armpit, glanced the left shoulder, and then I got shot in the side and I came out the back. And, you know, when you look back on it, you know, where it went in the side and out the back, when they were taking care of me in the hospital with the back wound, they were hitting my spine and hurting me. (laughs) But as far as the gunshot itself, it went straight through without hitting any major things, which is surprising where it went through with appendix and different parts of your body are there. So I was lucky that nothing hurt me. And, you know, in the right arm and out the armpit and the shoulder and out the armpit, and there it went through there and didn't stop me from using my arm or anything you, and I were, was still in you the were still gun shooting fight. yeah I was in the gunfight still so is this just a couple of minutes is this like a firefight that just is very brief and intense or what did it go on for a while it from the first shot you know it was probably a little while before we got into the big battle you know but once the big battle started we were wiped out probably in a you know within 10 minutes was probably over and I was knocked unconscious, and I woke up with when they were tying my hands behind my back, the North Vietnamese, and I was going, uh-oh. <laughs> I should say. You feel like you're in trouble now. Before you went down, yes, I think there was a Viet Cong with a grenade, and he was prepared to launch it toward you? Yeah. And and you now you've been hit twice, right? Yes. At this point, yes. You you were hit a third time. Did that come later? Yes. All yes. right. So you see the Viet Cong with the grenade in his hand. Yeah. You're wounded twice, and you're still able to get a shot off that takes him down. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. There there was you know no time that I felt I couldn't do everything, and basically. Uh, as far as shooting and things, I could do everything. And, uh, you know, even I didn't find out I couldn't walk <laughs> until later after when I went to escape. Now, when you fired your shot at the Viet Cong with the, the grenade, yes, he went down, but he was still, he'd completed his throw. So yes. the grenade comes and lands near you. Yes. 
Yes. And, and is that what sent you into unconsciousness? I don't really know for sure. You know, when you get knocked out, you don't know. When you come to, you don't know for sure what caused it. Well, you're losing a yeah. lot of blood. You've got bullet holes in you. Yeah. And the, and the shot that disallowed you from walking hit your pelvic bone, right? Yes. It fractured my ilium. So which, you can't, yeah, it's the big, which, the big portion of the, the pelvic yeah. bone. Yeah. All right, so you're, you're knocked unconscious. Yes. And you come to. Yes. And you got your hands tied behind your back. They were still tying my hands when I came to. And I go, uh-oh. <laughs> then you realize you're in trouble. What did they do to you? So I decided to play dead. Right away? Right away. Right when I came to, because they were tying my hands. And I said, I don't want to do anything now. But I was <sighs> breathing heavy. And I think it's just natural when you come to from being unconscious. But they were tying my hands behind my back. And that's when, after I caught my breath, I just said, <sighs> and I'll just play dead. What in the world gave you the presence of mind to realize that you're going to have to play dead to get out of this situation? I, I think what made me realize it was my hands were tied behind my back and they were there. And it was more fear probably that I decided to play dead and not be taken with them. You know, I figured if I played dead, they might shoot me to make sure I'm dead. You know, is what I was afraid of. But by, at that time, it, I what, didn't want to go with them, no and, matter what. And are you aware at that point that there are other dead Marines around you? Oh, yeah. That, yeah, at that time, you know that you've been in the firefight and things. And, you know, and I don't know how long it's been, but it could have been long that I was unconscious. You know, when they tied my hands behind my back, and then I, and just played dead. And the only thing they did after that, there were more of them come by, they lift my head up and drop it. And they, they grabbed your hair? Yeah, grabbed the, the top helmet. of your head? The helmet. I had oh, you the had your helmet, helmet on? And, yeah. Okay, and the helmet? Lift it up and drop it. And I just, you know, pretended like I was dead when they lifted up. And, they didn't do a thorough check. That was enough. Then, uh, you know, one of them bounced his rifle up and down on my back a few times, you know, to see if I'd jump, and I didn't. And, no, he he wasn't trying to hurt me. <laughs> you know, he, he did it just, you know, figuring I'd jump or move if something. So you're doing very shallow breaths. Yes. And you've told yourself to expect that you're going to get bopped. Yeah with a rifle, the butt end of the rifle, or whatever. Yeah, I figured that it, if the roles were reversed, I probably would have just shot the guy in the head and moved on. But they hit me with the rifle, rifle a few times and things, and then they just, with my hands tied behind my back, they move on. And I just lay there and play dead. And 
I played dead for I don't know how long it is because this was early in the morning and it was dark by the time I left. So it was just something that there was fighting going on in the area, not with us anymore. But from what I heard, there was an army platoon or something that came in and were going across the rice paddy instead of down the road because that's where the VC were. And there was still a war going on there, but I wasn't involved in it. I was tied up and dead and I was working on getting my hands untied. Tell me your level of fear at that point. You know, it's hard to say, but you know, you're not really scared. It's just something you know now that you're in a world of trouble. And it's you're not really scared. You just know you got to do your best to still get out of it, you know, that you weren't dead. And it was just, okay, do it. Did your captors, could you hear them walk away? Yeah, you could hear things going on around me. And then there was still a war going on, you know, and things. But when they lift my head up and dropped it, it it wasn't like they were trying to hurt me. They were just checking. Mm -hmm. And they just lifted up and dropped it. And when I got my hands untied from behind me, and they came up to me, and my hands were up over my head at the time, and I just left them there and played dead. And that time the guy dropped lift my head up and dropped it and he he's i think just the one that hit me in the back with the rifle just to see what i was doing but because my hands were the rope was still on one of my hands or the boot lace they used to tie it so so you were untied you had untied yourself before they left yeah you know this was they, I'm not even saying the same guys did it all. I think there was a lot of things going on around me at the time. Right, well, they well, just stumbled across me. What was your cue to make an escape attempt, to crawl away, or to try to walk away, yeah. which you could not do? Yeah. But what, what told you, now's the time to move? Uh, it was getting late it was almost to darkness time but it was an idea that laying there wasn't going to do me any good (laughs) you know that they weren't going to fix me up and if they did anything they would take me with them you know and it was just that i knew i knew my way back not like we were traveling for two days or anything out in the woods or the forest or jungle so I knew where I had to get to. Your eyes, I presume, are closed during most of this. Yeah, during most of my head's down. And, and then you know. when you decide to make your move, you open your eyes and you can see, yeah. despite the darkness, you can see what's going on around you. Yeah. You don't have anybody immediately in your vicinity the, there? The corpsman is laying within eyesight and within reach. And before I left, I dock. Doc, and he never answered me. So he was gone. Yeah. So, but I didn't look for anybody else. And How many guys were killed then? There were eleven or ten or eleven of us that went out there, and they were all dead. And the PFs were killed too, I believe. You were the only survivor of the whole no, group. No, uh, 
there were Ed Palmer and Don Berger, two of the guys that were with us. They, I, and I thought they were all dead. But I found out later that they made it back. That so guy, the three of you are the survivors yeah, of this firefight. Yes. And when I found out Palmer and uh, Don Berger made it back, I was kind of pissed at them. <laughs> that, you know, why didn't they take me or check me out? You know, because I, I don't know, they were wounded, but they were able to walk, I think, back. So you when know? you make your move... You yeah. you try to stand up and walk, yeah, and, and I, that doesn't work. No, I stand up and I fall down and I try it again and I fall down again, and that's when I decide I got to crawl back to where we started. How far are you crawling? It's I you know probably if half mile. You're, mile you're to, crawling a yeah, half mile to a mile? Yeah, through, and I'm, I decide then to go through the rice paddy, you know, not back down the road because if I bumped into people, I figured it would be the wrong people. And there was a Gates, Gate 6 bridge is what we called it, the bridge over the river. And I knew if I got back there, that I'd be okay, that that would still be under control because we weren't going to give that bridge up, I figured. And if we didn't own the bridge, I was wasting my time anyway. So if you're in a rice paddy, you're you're making your way crawling through yes. mucky water. Yes. I, I imagine you, you, you've got to have, you, you're thirsty. Yeah, yeah, well, that's the one thing. Is I was really, had dry mouth and things, and I came across through the rice paddies, and there was water in the one, and I looked at it and said, that doesn't look too good, but it, it looks cold and wet. <laughs> and I pushed the bugs aside and stuck my head in it and drank from it. It was good. <laughs> I can't believe you're crawling all this way. Yes. And you is it daylight still or is it is it dark? It's now it's going into the night. Okay. And but you know as much as they say pitch black, you know at night you can still see. And when you know where you're going and you're crawling through a rice paddy, there isn't too much in your way. <laughs> so you you make it to the bridge? Uh, Close to the bridge? I crawl through the night, and then it starts getting light out. And I'm getting close to the bridge, and then I can see the road. And there's a patrol going down the road. And I say, they have to be on our team. Otherwise, I'm wasting my time because they couldn't be walking down the road if they were the enemy if we still had the bridge. So I thought I better let them find me. So I stood up, and I couldn't walk. I fell down, stood up and fell down, did that a couple of times, and somebody seen me then. They came you know, over to me. You know, it was Vietnamese, and I figured. Was he an Arvin? I figured he must be an Arvin. Okay. And, I, and the first thing he says to me is, where's your rifle, Marine? Souvenir VC? And I, <laughs> yeah. Not funny after you crawled for how long? Had, how long did you crawl? I crawled all night because it was getting daylight when he seen me, and that's where I seen them, and that's where I could stand up and fall down, and 
you know, and found out, you know, I can't walk or anything. And Okay, you, you, you've been shot three times. You can't walk. Most of your fellow Marines have been killed. Yes. You're crawling through rice paddy muck for most of the night. Yes, yeah, through. And during all this time, do you remember what you were thinking? You know, you go through and you think about everybody back home and you wonder, you know, like my ex-girlfriend, you know, because I didn't have a real girlfriend at the time. I had broke up with one before I went in. And you kind of hope, hope she really got over me, you know, and things. You hope the people back home, you're more worried about them and how they'll feel that you died, you know, and you think about them. And and then it also helps you keep going, thinking, you know, I can still make it back there. Did you have doubts? Oh, you always have some doubts, you know, you're not feeling that good, you know, and you, you know you were shot a few times and things. And, you know, and I had a on my right hand and I'd look down and there was a it was a big hunk of skin just hanging there that I was playing with a little bit to entertain myself and you know I said ah, let's keep going <laughs> so when did the Marines first arrive to somebody who it was somebody from your unit came out and, and got a no and, and helped you out no the, when when I saw in the morning when I stood up and fell down and they seen me and it was an Arvin. They had a camp across the road. Then I figured he was a good guy because if he wasn't, I was wasting my time anyway. But he came and he helped me and we stood up together and then we both fell down and tried it again and fell down and then he called another guy. And did he then take you to his camp? Yes, they took me to his camp. There they did some doctoring of me, and I still didn't know for sure what was going on because the the North and South Vietnamese look pretty much alike. Yes, they do. (laughs) And you had to be incredibly exhausted at this point. You've lost a lot of blood. Yeah, you're, you, you, you've gone through a horribly traumatic experience, so how can you possibly be thinking straight? Well, I mean, I, you're thinking instinctively yeah. to save your life. Yeah, I don't know how straight I was thinking, but you're, you are still knowing what you have to do and thinking, you know, I hope this works out. <laughs> you know? So they did some preliminary medical work, but yes. then they, did they get you back? To your unit fairly no, swiftly? The, the, yeah, it wasn't long. Uh, there was a colonel or something in the Army, and they came out in three Jeeps. And they came and looked at me and did some bandage work again. And then they uh, said, well, we got to get you to the hospital. How do you want to go? <laughs> you know, I said, What? He said, do you want us to call a helicopter in, or do you want to go in the Jeep? And they had a Red Cross Jeep there. I said, I'll go by Jeep. Let's just get me out of here. And this nice colonel said, would you rather go in my Jeep? And I said, no, thank you, sir. I'd rather go in the one with the Red Cross. 
got me in the jeep, and they took me to the hospital at Da Nang. And the good part about it was the airbase did have some paved or smoother roads on it. Yeah, you don't have to everything be. Everything else was. You're bounced kind around. Of bouncing around on the way there. When you get to the hospital, do they explain to you the extent of your wounds, and do you realize how seriously you've been wounded? No, no, no. When you get there. They come, the first thing, they start cutting your clothes off. You know, they just cut all your utilities off and take your shoes off and you lay in there naked and things. They carry me inside to an operating room. And I said, wait a minute, aren't you going to put me to sleep? And they said, you can go to sleep if you want to. And I said, what? And that's the last I remember till I woke up. And when I woke up, I said, what happened to me? I, I, my whole upper body, you know, when they take care of you, at a, they, my arm was wrapped all the way up to past the shoulder, and it was six inches deep, and I had bandages on my sides and on both shoulders and you're my like head. A, you're like and, a mummy. Yeah, I said, what happened? <laughs> and they tell tell you that, that you'll be okay. <laughs> Did you doubt that you'd be okay? It well, the the one thing was the doctor was saying, "I think you'll walk again." That's reassuring. And I said, "Okay, I think I will too." Because you know they keep you at the hospital at the Nang for a couple days, and then they. Medevac you to they medevac me to Japan. Was the plane filled with wounded? Yes. Yeah, it was pretty full. That's all I know. And you're on a stretcher laying there looking out the window at Japan you know, and they took me and I it was an army hospital in Japan, which I don't know which one it was or what it was. So you went through how many surgeries? I, I think it was two, three. When you're when you're at the base hospital does someone say to you in conversation during this whole process, what an incredible effort you made to get yourself out of harm's way? Did they realize that you'd crawled all night long? No, I no. Okay. They don't really know. When by the time you get there, they just know you're a patient. You know, the only one that I seen there was Keith Kazi, who was the guy in charge at Echo 4, and that's where I found out that they all got out alive. So the unit that you were sent, Echo 2 is sent to help out Echo 4, Yes. fearing that they've all been captured or shot or whatever, yes. but you find out then when you're in the hospital that Echo 4, everybody got out okay. Yeah, they, they got airlifted out of there. And as far, you know, I still don't know the time and the everything. And so you went through your ordeal, your fellow Marines are killed, and the other guys got out, they were airlifted out of there. Yeah. So there must have been an absence of communication at some point. There, yes, there is, you know, an absence of communication without a doubt. And it's a lot to do with there's a war going on. Yes. You know, it's... We don't know, but there's nobody to tell us because they don't know what's going on either. So, yeah, it's a lot of miscommunications. Cause you know you're going home at this point. Yes. And you're probably unsure of your physical future, although the doctor has reassured you you're going to walk again. Yes. When you came home, did your folks know about what had happened? 
No, in fact, in Japan, they let they give you a phone and you can call home. And I called home, and it was like three o'clock in the morning at home, I guess, when I called home. And my mother answered the phone, and and I, hi, mom, and she's Donnie. And I go, yeah. She said, where are you? I said, I'm in Japan. And she said, what are you doing there? I said, you heard the R and R. And I, she said, yeah. I said, well, I'm resting and recuperating because I got shot a few times. And she goes, ah, talk to your father. <laughs> and then I talked. What did you to say to your dad? dad? I told dad that everything's okay. You know, I'm okay. I'm out of the war. I'm in Japan in the hospital. I got shot a few times and things, but I'll be okay. How'd he react? He, he was pretty good about it. My dad was always... He was a medic in World War II, yeah. so... He knew more, and, you know, and when I told him, you know, everything was okay, you know, he was able to grasp it and take take it okay. So how about Kenny Graber, your friend who you enlisted? Did you talk to him when you came home? Oh, yeah. Kenny Graber, I talked to Marilyn McGlone and everybody back home, and... It wound up that we got a group coming up to the hospital, Great Lakes. How long were you at Great Lakes recuperating? It was February 29th. I got back to the States. And I stayed at Great Lakes till it was May 1st or June 1st. I could have milked it and stayed at Great Lakes and got discharged from there but I said no I want to go see what the Marine Corps is like because so far in the Marine Corps the only thing I did was go through training and then go to Vietnam and things and I was still thinking do I like the Marine Corps I said I'd like to go someplace so that I wound up I went to Quantico found out that I didn't like the Marine Corps. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it could be argued that your lessons should have been learned after you left Vietnam. (laughs) You would think so, but no, I wanted to see what it was like stateside and if it was a good place to hang out. It wasn't. The Marine Corps was just too petty for me. I'm not a spit and polish type guy, you know. I decided I wanted to get out. So you were honorably discharged. Yes. And about this point in time is when you and a friend go, you're at O'Hare? Yeah. And how does that unfold? (laughs) Well, we go, me and John McDonald, who was a Silver Star winner, and we went through boot camp and stuff together. And, you know, you you make friends with some of them. And he was probably the one that was my best friend. And we went to O'Hare on when we got out, and we stopped in a bar, and we ordered a drink, and the bartender says, where's your IDs? And I was still 20 years old when I got out, so I said, I don't have one. Said, Come on, you're in the military. You got an ID. I said, no, I just got out. He said, well, then get out. <laughs> because I and I wasn't 21 yet, I couldn't even stay in the bar and have a drink with the guys because I wasn't 21 when I got out. 
Well, did you say anything to the barkeep? Yeah, he says it, you know, and he wasn't really mean. You know, he was doing his job. You know, he... Are you, are you in uniform? Uh, no, 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 right. no, no. I wasn't in uniform. He believed I got out of the service and everything, but his job was, uh, you know, and he probably deals with military guys all the time at O'Hara. And he said, no, if you're not 21, you can't even stay in here. Well, were you tempted to say to him that I got shot three times? I had a grenade tossed at me. I was unconscious. I was taken <laughs> captive, and I crawled through rice paddies for most of the night. <laughs> And he'd say, "Crawl out." <laughs> you, know, he, you know, you could tell I wasn't going to get a drink. You're not going to get a first base with this right, guy, right? Yeah, All you right. could tell. Lessons learned, right, huh? Right. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> okay. You have a wonderfully remarkable sense of humor that you've been able. I guess this is this is Don Talbot his whole life, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. Some people would say that after you've gone through a traumatic experience like that, there's really nothing funny about it. Why and why are you why are you making having fun with it? Well, I think what most people say is I got a warped sense of humor. <laughs> but the, 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 if I sat here and told the story and cried all the time, you know, it just wouldn't work either. You know, it's a you know it's sad in a way, but. It's a good story because I'm here, as far as for me, it's a good story because I'm here to tell it. Is humor part of what of who you are, or is it also part of the therapy that I, you give yourself? I think it's a combination. You know, I think I was always kind of a warped sense of humor guy. You know, I it wasn't something that just came about. You know, I was always... You know, enjoying life, you know, and it turned out pretty good overall, you know. I should say, you went on to a career in insurance for yeah. Yeah, I three decades? In insurance for till I was 50, and then I retired at 50. And it, it was my wife's is or was a nurse, so she had good income. And uh, then I had disability and everything from the service. So when I turned 50, I could also get a pension mm-hmm. and retire and enjoy life. And So you've been living the life of Riley for oh, a while then. Oh, huh? I've been living the <laughs> life of Riley, Riley for so long. <laughs> You went on the last honor flight Chicago mission of the season this past season. Yes. And when you got to the wall, did you look up any of the names of your fellow Marines who were killed in that firefight? Oh, yes. Yeah. And we've got a wall right here in Munster, Indiana, where I live, that is a duplicate of the wall in Washington. So I've seen it and know the names. And it's something that doesn't really make me feel bad it kind of makes you feel good that the names are there and they are remembered it is sad in the way that that's so many young lives that were lost but it's also good in the way that they are remembered especially you know 50 years plus later you know because no nobody around knew these people hardly anymore so it's good to see that 
they are recognized and remembered for what they did. Do you, looking back, have any regrets at all about your service? No, not really. I think if it was all to do again, I'd do it again because, you know, it's, it's still something you're proud of. You know, there are some times you might want to be in a different place. But overall, it was a good experience. And looking back on it, I have fond memories. What did you learn about yourself? That I am a goofy guy. (laughs) With a lot of grit and determination and stamina, I would suggest. Did you learn that about yourself? Oh, yeah. That I, you know. I would stand up for my rights and the rights of the country, and I, you know, was proud of what I did. So yeah, I found out that you know I was a good person too. That I wasn't afraid to do things. But are you sometimes amazed when you think? I have had plenty of opportunities to think about your experience there after <laughs> you're wounded, but aren't, aren't you in the least bit amazed that you were able to do that and yeah. survive? Yeah, you are in a way surprised and things but you dwell on the people around you and you know the support you had you know like I said at the hospital you got people coming all the time and growing up at Harvey you know there were 10 people from Harvey that would come up on a regular basis you know to see me at the hospital and things so The kid from Harvey, Illinois, had a lot of friends that he could count on, and they came through and and helped you. The the kid with the warped sense of humor from Harvey. Yeah, the Harvey group was and is still a good group. And you're a happy man. Oh, yeah. Uh, Warped sense of humor notwithstanding. Okay, (laughs) that could be. I mean that in the most complimentary sense. I think I've been accused of that a few times. Oh, Don, thank you very much for sharing your story. Okay. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. And if you did, please consider sharing this podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.